Okay, there's the connection. Here's the music. I think. There it is. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell their own rich no online here in the two hours we spend together on weekdays and we call it the radio ranch here at the Eurofolk radio network roger his sales your host moderator whatever else we do around here question answer and uh it's a friday edition today which uh, is date stamped 22522, and uh, that uh, usually means, with very few exceptions over many years, that Brent Winters is the co-host with us today. We're always glad to have Brent and his infusion of uh, his uh, observations and his uh, experience and wisdom coming to share that kind of stuff with us on Fridays. Brent, I assuming I'm getting on a little bit late here today, but I know you and I exchanged messages this morning, so I'm assuming you're with us and you find your mute there uh so uh yesterday we had a i guess yesterday we had a record amount of people on the jitsi board here jeff informed us during the program 45, we had 45 i thought it was 48 40 four plus 40 plus and uh, approaching yeah. uh somebody it may have been nastasha did some research through jitsi and i think she said their limit is 50 now they can go over that and uh, they were talking about maybe they're working on increasing that number and they could flip it over believe it or not to a youtube stream <laughs> i'm not sure how that'd go down but uh anyway it's good to see that amount of people that want to come and uh, get involved with us here on the platform and that we're getting a lot of new listeners i can tell that and uh, you got we're, people raising their hands too. oh well all right we'll get to you now for the new folks I, it's impossible for me to see your hand raised okay and so if you got questions or comments or observations or analysis, you're just going to have to, uh, we're going to put decorum on the side. You just got to stick your foot out there and say, Roger, you know, hey, hey, me. Uh, but usually today is uh, the day since Brent's taken time to be with us out of his schedule. We kind of turn it over to him a little bit and let see if we can get some of the uh, the connections here to the real battle we fight, which is a spiritual battle, and get that firm uh, from his point of view. And Brent's quite an accomplished guy. I, I often say, Brent, that you're a national treasure, and I do believe that. I'm not being facetious at all. So uh, anyway, Brent, you with us out there, man? Do I see you on the board? I'm here, Roger. Okay, good. Glad to have you. Um, listen, I, I don't know if uh, I don't I didn't send you this message. I don't think, but it came from our mutual friend Thumper. Uh huh. In a message yesterday, and somebody was wanting his Rumble channel, and I had sent him a message asking him what it was, and he shot me back that. And then at the bottom, he said I was listening to a show. He didn't identify it, but uh, we might ask him about it on Sunday. And he said uh, they were saying that there's the State Department's received three million of these status change affidavits to have no idea where they got the information. Uh, but, you know, in my own mind, I would think that may be about right. Honestly, I've wondered that a time or two. I don't know if I've told you this or not, Brent, but this is something Glenn told me after they got out of Club Fed and uh, 
you know, John and Glenn only taught for six months, and part of the uh, remedy that we had back then, unfortunately, we didn't know about the Secretary of State, or quite honestly, we might live in a different world if they'd have known that 30 years ago. Impossible to say, obviously. But uh, they only taught for six months. They had 1,200 students. And um, in open court, the U.S. attorney in Salt Lake said that the IRS had received over 100,000 of those affidavits. So if you take that, and I know U.S. attorneys lie, okay? But I don't think he was lying in this instance. An unusual occurrence, probably. But uh, anyway, if you take that and just kind of extrapolate a little bit with 11 years of us teaching this, it would it, be real easy for me to see how they'd received that many, uh, that that might be accurate. So anyway, I'll have to query Thumper a little bit more about it, but uh, I thought it was very interesting. So how you doing on this Friday, uh, February the 25th, all right, Roger. I'm doing okay. I am reminded when you said that the fear that the left has the left the left lives in fear. Yes, they do. If you're living in fear and calling yourself on the right, you're not going to do any good. You have nothing to fear. They have everything to fear because they're facing ultimate judgment in this life and in the life after, or both at the same time. I don't know what the supreme judge of all the earth is going to do at any given point, but I do know what he's going to do. I just don't know what he's going to do at any given point. And he doesn't tell anybody. His method is never to tell anybody the date, the time, and the hour, but his method is to tell everybody clearly what to look for and what's going to happen next. It's a matter of events. It's always a matter of triggering events. And we're now on Patriot Soapbox. I just finished reading the Jack Henson's Jack Henson's Private War story about the fellow lived between the Cumberland, Tennessee rivers. Oh yeah, yeah. You've talked about south, him. Yeah, just south of uh, Paducah, Kentucky, Metropolis, Illinois. Is that there's a where the tip of Tennessee and the tip of Kentucky come together. The Cumberland and and uh, Tennessee rivers, one comes from, they all come from the Appalachian Mountains south down some of, well, the lower one through Alabama, Muscle Shoals, and then they both run parallel in a general way, and then they run west, and they turn straight north and run into the Ohio up through the tips uh, of uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, and he lived there. And uh, U.S. Grant, uh, of course, he was living in, when the war started, he was living in Galena, Illinois, and working as a tanner for his father. He'd pretty much flat busted, and he'd been 14 years an Army officer, a graduate of West Point, and people dismissed him, told him, if you don't resign from the Army, we're going to throw you out, and it won't be pretty. He was at an outpost at that time in the state of Washington, out on, as my grandma used to say, Puget Sound, Washington. <laughs> She had all that kind of, she read a lot. Grandma liked to read, but she'd never been around people that pronounced the words. And so she pronounced them the way they looked. She'd talk about the Santa Fe Railroad and the uh, San Juan, San Juan Capistrano. Or she uh, she'd talk about Puckett Sound. Well, that's where it was an outpost in those days in uh, the howling wilderness to be out there. And, 
U.S. Grant, when Ulysses, Ulysses Simpson Grant, when he get by himself and away from his family, which he was out there, uh, like a lot of men do, that are military men, and the military has you milling about smartly. That's what they'll do to you. They'll say, well, just stay out of sight and don't get me in trouble. That's what the chief says or the gunny sergeant or, or somebody. They, they just want to make sure that all this, these ruffians, these unwashed masses of enlisted men don't get anybody in trouble. But the officers are that way, too, when they get out of the way. They don't have anything, and they get to drinking quite a bit. And that's what he did. He got to drinking quite a bit. A lot of alcoholism in the military. That's what? true. A lot of alcoholism in the military. Oh, it's yeah. very it's true. Just part of, it's part of life, and it, it, it's dangerous, though. But it is part of military life. There's no question about it. Well, he, he got uh, in a bad way, and they said, no, we like you, but you got to go. And he left and <clears throat> couldn't find any work and drinking and wound up coming back to his father for help. And his father lived in Galena, which is in the very northwest corner of the state of Illinois in what's called the unglaciated area where the glaciers spit, split and <laughs> apart and went around that area, and it's it's hilly, big, tall hills, and uh, they even got ski resorts up there, believe it or not. But just a very small area. Well, he went up there, and then the war broke out, and he said, well, shucks, I'm 14 years an Army officer and West Point graduate. I'll skip the Brent, Brent, can I, like, somebody that's got their mute open and we're getting yeah. a little ambient noise back there, it's a little bit mm-hmm. distracting. If you could, yeah. everybody check your mute. I can't see and identify because it's just a phone a phone emblem here, but it looks like you're the one that's got your mute off. If you could mute that up, and we sure appreciate it so everybody can get the full impact of Brent's story. This is a very interesting story here. Go ahead, Brent. Well, U.S. Grant took up a position. They said, yeah, we need you because they were willing to take him at that point. They needed men. And 300, I believe 305, 305 West Point graduates upon the secession of their states from the Union left service in the U.S. Army. 305. Oh, it made Lincoln madder than an old wet hen, and he said, he called them spoiled brats. He said, here the United States has educated these men, and now they're bolting from, from service. Of course, a lot of them, uh, I remember reading about some of them were out west in places like New Mexico, and they uh, were from the eastern states that had left the Union, and they decided that since they were commissioned, they could do that. And the enlisted men wanted to do it too, but they explained to the enlisted men, you can't do that. Your contract is for a term of years. Ours is not and so they left believing that they had not broken their contract with the united states but they had to make their way back across dangerous territory and and uh, risk indian attack and scalping and all sorts of things just to get back by themselves well many of them did here's another interesting point about that though having followed up on those men uh, none of them hardly any of them ever amounted to anything of note after the war, the ones that left. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying why. I don't know why. Uh, Some of them, of course, went to the South American, Caribbean, Central American countries and took up commissions for for those countries because they were trained military men. Uh, One of them became the governor of of, uh, uh, Louisiana, I believe it was, and he, he made it, but he didn't make it in the private sector. That's my point. None of them became productive that way. 
uh, that I know of. Now, I, it's hard to remember everything, but I did follow up on it, on on them. Um, but uh, Grant, he joined the, the Union Army, and they didn't think much of him, so they assigned him to recruiting duty at a place called Mattoon, Illinois, M-A-T-O-O-N, Mattoon. It was a railroad town where two railroads had crossed back in 1856 and a town sprung up down on the prairie, way south, way south of where he was. But they took up a recruiting station there and they started gathering troops. And then the war was getting hot in the West. Then he was assigned because he acquitted himself and got the job done there in good shape. And they signed him to a command to take across the Ohio River down by Metropolis, Illinois, and cross over into Kentucky and to uh, try to see what he could do about Fort Donaldson and Fort Pillow on the Cumberland and Tennessee Rivers because the Cumberland and the Tennessee Rivers, you see, uh, were the key to the heart of the South. And the packet boats going up and down carried supplies to Nashville. That was uh, one of those rivers, of course, and uh, went through there. And then on south into Alabama, and they'd come up. Well, they wanted, of course, the Union wanted to control the Mississippi River and the Ohio River, and they hadn't got that done yet. And they had a man, uh, they called him Old Brains. He was a West Point graduate. His name was Old Brains. That was his nickname. Because he was always thinking about stuff, but himself never did anything. And he was in charge of the, and it's true, he was in charge of the Department of the Missouri, which was the military map of course i wish you all could see what i'm looking at i'm looking at i'm looking at sun shining through the woods uh, on <coughs> limbs and twigs that are covered thick with ice now if you've never seen that you ain't lived it's amazing watch sun come up through something like that but it's beautiful of course it melts it real quick at any rate so uh, old brains what was his name started with an h halleck or something like that but he was in command and grant was subject to him well, the Confederates wanted to maintain control of those rivers, obviously, on the, in the West. And uh, so he besieged one of those forts. There was a fellow down there who had a farm named Jack Henson, and he, wanted, he didn't want to get involved in war. As a matter of fact, he had a big crap, uh, crap. <laughs> I'm getting tongue-tied. He had a big, uh, what was I going to say, a crop, a big crop. It wasn't crap. It was a crop. Of, uh, <laughs> he had a good crop of flax, which was bigger in Kentucky. Flax, well, not flax. Um, what do they call it? It's marijuana. Hemp. Hemp, hemp, yeah. He had a big crop of hemp, and that was bigger, a bigger crop at that time in Kentucky than was tobacco. Yep. Tobacco was tobacco was huge. But he, he raised both, and he had a number of uh, slaves. He wasn't a big planter, but he owned maybe a dozen or two. I don't know, maybe a dozen. That seemed like that's what it was. And he, their families, all their families were there, and they were part of his family. And he saw to their lodging, their health care, their clothes, and all. They all got along great. It was a, a farm called Bubbling Springs, in the land that's called today. It's called the land between the lakes because the Tennessee Valley Authority has dammed up both those rivers and they're navigatable in a way they weren't before. But, uh, but then it was called the land between the rivers because the rivers, the Cumberland and the Tennessee, they get real close there and come up, they trend parallel and then they flow right close together into the Ohio river. And he lived on that spit, that Island, that, uh, no, that peninsula of land between the Cumberland and the Tennessee rivers. Uh, 
they call it a jut. In old Anglo-Saxon, the Danes called it a jut. You know, that's why they called De- uh, Denmark Jutland, and still do. Jutland mm-hmm. juts out into the sea. Well, that's what it was, and he he besieged uh, one of the forts, I believe, Fort, Fort Pilla, and uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest came to reinforce that fort from the other side. And the fellow that commanded the fort was an old uh, classmate of Grant's at West Point who had fought with him. They were close friends, had fought with him in the Mexican War uh, down in Mexico. They'd been through a lot together. And uh, now I may, I'm, I'm now there's Donaldson and Pillow, and I'm getting them mixed up. So one of you fellows go look that up. But let me tell you the story because the, that's not germane to the story. Uh, this fellow said, uh, I want to settle. He thought he had him cornered. I want to settle and surrender under terms. And Grant wrote back to him, sent a message back and said, no, no terms are acceptable of surrender except unconditional surrender. No terms are acceptable except unconditional surrender. And that's why ever after, ever after he's been called U.S. Grant. And because, because he, he, then he said at the end of that note, I intend to move on your works in the morning. And that was to his friend. Well, uh, they ended up knowing they were outgunned. They surrendered. And now it seems like, if I remember right, the other fort was commanded by a political hack from uh, Kentucky who, uh, who almost got fully court-martialed for surrendering. He went through the trial, and he never regained his reputation. He didn't know what he was doing. Uh, no, Bedford Forest was there. That was it. He was at that fort on the other river, and he said, um, "Doing what we can, we can get out of here. We don't have to surrender. All we got to do is cross the river." He said, "No, no, the river is too deep. We'll all drown." And he said, "We got to surrender." And that's what all of his officers said. And Forrest said, "No, I'm not going to do it." And so he took his men. They were horseback, of course, and. Uh, he waded across in the water. He, he testified at his court martial, that fellow's court martial. The water was belly deep to the horses. It wasn't deep. And he got away. Otherwise, he'd have been in prison camp and you'd never heard of him. But Grant took that fort and he laughed. He actually laughed, according to a fellow that was with him, when he received the note from that political hack that should never, never been an officer. Received a note saying that they decided to surrender because Grant knew that the Confederates outnumbered and outgunned him. And then he said, ever after that, U.S. Grant said, that was my lesson in warfare. I'd been to war before, but I'd never come to grips with the reality that my enemy is at least as much afraid of me or more than I am of him. And And he was admitting, and he said that, by the way, in his autobiography. He said in his autobiography that he discovered that his enemy was at least as much afraid of him always and probably a lot more. And so there was no need to fear his enemy and that's what drove him. You, Whoever you're for and whoever you think was right in that war and whoever you think was wrong, one thing for sure, it's just a fact, U.S. Grant never quit and he didn't ever act like he was afraid of the enemy. And he didn't ever communicate that to his troops. Now some have said that he was a butcher because he took no cognizance of how many troops he lost. Well, uh, Robert E. Lee was that way. Robert E. Lee would throw his troops, and he knew they were brave. He would throw them at the enemy. 
and the enemy would slaughter them. And his, the last straw for him was at Gettysburg at Pickett's Charge. He lost uh, mm. almost every man he threw at him. Right. That was cool, foolhardy on his part. Um, it should have never been done. His officers didn't want to do it. And when he gave the, the, the command to charge for the charge, they, they couldn't even say yes, sir. The people that were there that testified, the men that were there said that, who was it? Longstreet, I believe his name was. Mm -hmm. Again, name, mm -hmm. He couldn't even say, yes, sir. He just, in in despair, nodded his head. That's what somebody... A real, a real turning point in the wars, Gettysburg yeah, and Pickett's Charge. Yeah, and the, the battle was the turning point, and Pickett's Charge was the turning point of the battle, but back to Grant. So he did all that, and Jack Henson... Uh, there, uh, went and invited U.S. Grant before he was famous, before that battle, invited him into his home, fed him supper, said, I don't want any part of this war, but I'm not going to stand in your way, and if you need help, I'll help you. He And he even went out and recountered the battlefield for Grant and gave, gave him a report. And uh, so he felt like he was okay. He knew where the power lay, but he tried to maintain neutrality to a great degree. Well, then his boys, two of his boys, he had some teenage boys, a couple, and they were squirrel hunting on his farm. A stupid, and when I say stupid, I mean stupid, union officer. Found his boys, and under a policy of uh, Secretary of War, Louis Stanton, or, uh, yeah, Louis Stanton, he, uh, he uh, accused them of, uh, on suspicion, mere suspicion of being bushwhackers, spies, tied both teenage boys to a tree and shot them without a trial. And that, by the way, was union policy in the Department of the Missouri, which stretched over into southern Illinois and Kentucky, Tennessee, and Missouri. And they th that was a copperhead area. And the copperheads, what they, that's what they called the folks that were southern sympath sympathizers who lived along the Ohio River. Some of them became very famous. And on west, cool. into what it's called today Little Dixie, which goes up toward Kansas City, where the settlers, I'll, I'll stop in a minute, let me finish this sentence. The set people that settled that area came from the Appalachians down through the Ohio Valley and then over in uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Illinois, and Indiana on, on both sides, then came up into what's called Little Dixie up toward Kansas City and the Missouri River up toward uh, Kansas City. Go ahead, Roger. Wasn't Henry Clay a copperhead? Uh, Henry Clay, oh no, he Henry Clay was what he's the he was one of the two men most famous for holding the union together. He was from Kentucky, Speaker of the House of Representatives, and he was the one behind the War of eighteen twelve. He was an old man by that, by those days, but he did all he could to hold the union together. And he was a Whig. Oh, okay. And he was the he was the protege Abraham Lincoln's mentor and protege. Uh, Lincoln was a Whig. And Lincoln was a hard follower of Henry Clay. That was his hero, but have, uh, his immediate hero. And, of course, Lincoln was in Congress for a short time and got to know him and all that. But as a matter of fact, Abe Lincoln's wife, uh, Mary Todd, her name was Todd, uh, she was from Lexington, Kentucky, a lot of, like a lot of the people in that part of the world. They were migrants from the coming through that the, the Appalachians and up through there. Mary Todd's family were close associates with Henry Clay's family. She was blue blood family, the Todds, from Lexington, Kentucky. I have a friend in the... Lincoln married, married her because of that association. Go ahead. One of our friends from the Atlanta groups was is related to Henry Clay. That's why I 
kind of always keep my ears perked up for him and i thought he i thought he had been a copperhead but i i remember the copperheads were southern sympathizers oh wait a minute wait a minute roger yeah i was thinking backwards no he may well have been i can't speak to that directly that's to your point i misunderstood what you said no he may well have been he was a union man 100 percent. he was like sam houston sam houston was a union man and was um and was persona non grata in texas for the rest of his life uh thomas hart benton senator from missouri was a union man he told Missouri and like Houston told Texas, don't do this. This will be the stupidest thing you ever did. Don't do it. There are other ways to deal with this problem. Well, the hotheads, they've been, this is a true story too. The people in the South had been taken up with uh, Sir Walter Scott's novels about Scotland. The, 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 his novels overtook the South. I mean, we cannot put ourselves in that, that, uh, that time and that spirit of chivalry that overtook the South. It was a, a, re, a renovation of chivalry. And the South, the, especially the younger men, of course, it's always the younger men that want to go to war. They got into that, and they wanted to go to war. And they were saying, we've been insulted, and we're going to defend our honor, and on and on they went. Well, that's not all bad, of course. That's very good. But they went about it all wrong, in my humble studied opinion. And Sir Walter Scott, by the way, all of his novels about Scotland were hogwash. None of it was true. In other words, what I'm saying is, right down to the matter of men wearing kilts, men, men in Scotland never wore kilts. That was an invention of Sir Walter Scott's novels. And it's funny, because even the people in Scotland, they want to revert back and wear kilts because Sir Walter Scott wrote his historical novels. And he was trying, of course, to get his own people, the Scottish people, to have pride in themselves. But he he told, he told lies to do it. Uh, people didn't wear uh, kilts in Scotland in ancient times. They wore long plaid robes, but they didn't wear kilts. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just making the point that it's a hype. It was all a hype. The whole thing about the, about the honor of the, of the Highlanders and the clansmen up there and all that. The, 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 the head of the, the clans in, in Scotland sold all of the Highlanders down the river and made them into slaves, all of them. That's how much honor they had. And that's why, by the way, America is filled with the Scotch-Irish is because of the what they call the Highland clearances of Scotland, uh, where the, the leaders, the clan leaders, sold out their own families and their own kin into Scotland, and they were on the coast. They, they migrated to the coast of Scotland, starving, and sold themselves into slavery. And uh, Roger, you and I had mentioned the book that we had talked about, written on, on the slavery of the not only the Scottish but the English-speaking people, sold sold themselves sold themselves into slavery into the Caribbean. And the name of the book is "They Were White and They Were Slaves." Yes, and uh, and that's where we get the word redneck because the the African slaves in the Car Caribbean called the Scottish and the English slaves that worked with them in the fields, rednecks, because the backs of their, their backs and their necks would get red, so that was their nickname, and that's where that comes from. Who is but, that? Just for the uh, audience, it may be yeah. new. <clears throat> Who, and I'm, I, his, I can't believe his name escapes me, the guy that wrote that, this wonderful revisionist. Uh, Hoff, is it Hoffman? Yeah, yeah, David, I believe in it. No. Michael. Pardon? Michael Hoffman. Michael, Michael, yeah, Hoffman. Michael Hoffman. I think his website is revisionisthistory.org yeah. or something like that. Yeah. If you're not familiar with Michael Hoffman and his work, folks, and you're new to this, uh, one, one of the true intellectuals in our movement, 
uh you, to read his books you just about got to have a theosaurus next to you and uh, but boy he's written judaism strange gods uh they were white and they were slaves uh, uh, more than i can even sit here and recite but extremely extremely accurate revisionist history he's a very much of a recluse i think he's yeah. isn't he still alive brent he lives oh, up yeah. in northern idaho i believe yeah he lives up around Coeur d'Alene or something, right? He, he's a recluse, and he writes all the time. He w- did write for the AP Press for a long time, and yeah. then he went out on his own. And uh, it's worth reading. No, you're exaggerating a little, Roger. He's such a good writer that he doesn't he doesn't use words that you can't. Uh, I mean, when he writes about, he, he'll write it, but he writes about the Judaism. He'll use Hebrew words, but he'll explain them and, and all that. Oh, he's got a book on usury that's probably yeah. one of the preeminent books on that subject ever written, honestly. I, no, no question, Roger. I've, I've read that one too. It is. It's a great book. Oh, I don't want to lose the tra- train of thought, sorry. Here, Roger. No, no, I'm glad you stopped me. I need a breather. And I, <laughs> and, I, and your, your rabbit trail, that's what this show is about, it's rabbit trail. So, yeah, but I do yeah. want to try to get through it and then we'll let people, uh, if they have comments or anything they want to say. But Jack Henson, at a tight, the, under the policy of the, of the Department of War, uh, an evil man, evil man, no question. And I say that on the authority of his great-great-grandson, who I practice law with, his great-great-grandson, his name was, uh, he's deceased now, Stanton Dodson, named after his uh, ancestor. And he told me, and he, he told me the family will tell you, including him, that he was, he was a, a wicked man. And he did wicked things. And uh, he was a lawyer, and he was a Democrat, by the way. And Lincoln put him in his cabinet. He called him his Mars, his god of war. He was a god of war, and uh, he did a lot of nasty things. But under his policy, men and women were murdered. Uh, pastors, pastors were thrown in prison camp who would not take an oath to, to the union of the states. Um, not some, a lot. A lot of people died in squalor because of his policies, especially, especially in the Department of the Missouri. And that's where they were trying to weed out trouble. Of course, that all had to do with the border ruffians over at Kansas and free soil doctrine and all that. Well, U.S. Grant uh, made a name for himself, U.S. Grant, because they hadn't had any victories. The, the Confederates were whooping them everywhere they went, per near. And he had a decisive victory, and he picked up steam from there on out, and he, he took the Mississippi River. Of course, Vicksburg was the last great obstacle. We've all heard about the Battle of Vicksburg. And then uh, U.S. Grant, US Grant kept, kept going and going, and somebody got to complaining to, to um, Lincoln and said, that man's nothing but a drunk. As a matter of fact, all the officers that were jealous of him, and there were lots, said he's nothing but a drunk going on his past reputation. I don't know that he was a drunk at that time. I do know that he was winning and people were sending him. They heard he liked to smoke cigars and they were sending him the finest cigars, the Cubans and Havana cigars they could get their hands on. He had no shortage of them. And during the course of the war, it's estimated that he smoked 20,000 Havanas. And uh, that's all nice. But of course, the sad part of that story is at the end of his life, and he didn't live at real old, he died of throat cancer right. miserably. And that was because he smoked all those cigars, no question. Oh, you can't prove that, Brent. Well, I'm not stupid. I've seen these things happen with cigarettes, and you have too. That stuff will kill you if you overdo it, obviously. 
Well, and that's not a down on him. He was a, um, he was a, he, well, Lincoln said when they complained about him, uh, he said, well, what I want you to do is find out what brand of whiskey he, he drinks. And we're going to send him some more cases because he's winning. You fellas ain't. Well, that was his response to them. So he eventually, after Brickburg, he moved him to the east and made him the the commander in chief of all of the Union forces. And he ended up, of course, uh, commanding Sherman and and those fellows and all the deeds they did, which weren't pretty either. But uh, getting back to to Jack Henson, Henson, uh, they killed his boys, and not only did they shoot them without a trial on mere suspicion, that was the official policy of the War Department under Stanton. Then they chopped the boys' heads off and took the boys' heads in gunny sacks, took them to Jack Henson's farmhouse, put their heads on the post of his gate coming up to his door of his house, knocked on the door, and uh, informed him that they'd just shot his boys and here are their heads. Of course, his wife fainted. Jack, a, a little man, by the way, not a very big man, he bit his lip like men. They called those men the people that lived there. They still do. You still hear it once in a while, mountaineers without mountains. That's true. That's what they call them because they were the men that migrated from the mountains down the valley and became farmers and up into Missouri. And they were the stiff upper lip kind of people. They didn't show emotion and, and he didn't say anything. He just listened to this officer and this sergeant tell him off and tell him. If, and then they told him, if we hear anything out of you or you're going to get the same treatment, that's what they said. Now I call that stupid. I mean, real stupid. And because of that stupidity, that viciousness, that lawlessness, Jack Henson shot, blew the hearts at long range, blew the hearts out of well over a hundred union officers. And they had a whole detachment of Marines looking for him for over a year and never did find him. He went to war and he went to war by himself. And the, the union had a, had a man that would have helped them a little. He wasn't against them, but he wasn't for them. He was kind of just wanting to stay out of the war. Well, they didn't let him. And he ended up uh, wrecking terrible havoc. He wouldn't shoot enlisted men. He drew the line. We finished reading that book, and uh, one of the listeners, I'd read about 15, 20 minutes every day. For I did it for months, finally got through it. One of the listeners said, well, what's, did he do the right thing? Did he do the right thing? And uh, I thought, well, yeah, we did go through the book as an object lesson. And um, one of the things that we came up with was, come up with was, uh, there is uh, neutrality is a myth. It's not possible. Never has been. Never will be. Uh, you got to choose sides. This is street thug fighting. That's what life is. And you got to choose which side you'll choose. Now, Jack Henson didn't join a gang, but he did choose sides and decided who he was at war with, and he went to war by himself, a one-man army. A fascinating story. Uh, Colonel Tom McKinney, United States Marine Corps, retired, researched the book. He did an excellent job, and it's a book about facts, and it tells about all of his exploits, um, uh, what he did and how he did wreck havoc and had the Union Army in a tizzy. And, uh, well, did he do the right thing? Uh, one thing I wanted to say that I didn't say when I answered that question or rather responded to it, uh, every man is responsible for what he does. 
Uh, no man will be allowed to stand behind the shadow of another man. And I say before God, I did it because this fellow said it was okay. The Pope said it was okay. The Supreme Court said it was okay. My preacher said it was okay. My dad said it was okay. My mom said it was okay. My college professor said it was okay. My guru said it was okay. God ain't going to listen to any of that. No, he said, but what did you decide to do? Or did you substitute like a slave? Did you substitute somebody else's mind for yours like a dodo? I told you not to do that. And he does tell us not to do that. Point blank, he tells us not to do that. We are to exercise our own discernment and our, our government that he has delegated to us depends upon individual discernment of individual men, fundamentally as grand jurors, jurors, and members of the militia of the several states of the union. That's what he says. And nobody's going to be able to stand behind anybody else. So Jack Henson made his decision and it was his decision to make. It was his jurisdiction and nobody could have made that decision for him and to criticize him for it after they had killed his boys. Uh, I'm not going to. Now his family misunderstood in some ways. And in generations after that, and uh, Colonel uh, McKinney makes a point of pointing that out, that they got into murder and vengeance in ways they shouldn't have. He didn't stand in judgment on them. He just told the facts, the facts of the matter. Um, but if somebody is going to kill your family and you're the father, I, was, yeah, I did say this, and maybe this is something that will elicit response. Every, every man is the keeper of his own dignity. Every man, nobody can keep your dignity. I'm talking to men, nobody. If you're a father, you are the keeper of the dignity of your family. If you're a husband, you are a keeper of the dignity of your wife. That is axiomatic. That is, that is established, firm as a matter of law. It has never changed. It will never change. God demands it. We were talking about uh, the Queen of England. Um, the Brent? Queen of England is the keeper of the dignity of her country. This, this is the analogy that I like to use. Oh, somebody said something. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I have to actually leave at nine, and I have a question for you. Oh, okay. It's a law well, Tell question. us your name first. I'm Dawn. Oh, hi, Dawn. Yeah. No, go ahead. Hey, hon. Um, so with regards to being a national and taking someone to court, um, is that a question that you can help answer? Being a national, in other words, can you take somebody to court yeah. as a national? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like a small claims. You're talking well, state court, state court, yeah. or federal court, Don. State. Okay. Well, Roger, do you want to respond? Do you want me to go first? Oh, well, this is one of those shades of gray area. I don't know that I've got a definitive answer. I do know that you've still got access to the common law in the states. And I would think that that is a, a, a possible thing to do, but I'd love to hear you weigh in on it. Well, I have a definitive answer. The answer is yes. Okay. That's a legal answer. That is a legal answer. In other words, the law says yes. The law says yes. The question is, uh, is a judge going to give you fits and, and not let you into court over some, uh, some minutia that doesn't matter? Right? Yeah, I've had that happen a lot. That happens a lot. But that doesn't mean it's lawful. So the answer as a matter of law is yes, you do. Now, what about federal court, Brent? Well, sure. Okay. Well, sure. I would think so because they're law, well, they're equal statuses, you know. I mean, they've made them equal. There's, it's a dual political status situation, and for them to exclude you from federal court seems to me would be discriminatory. Right, but and Don is focusing more on uh, 
small claims sound to me like state court. And then they're going to ask you, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't you the one that filed that paper? <laughs> oh, oh, you, you took your coat to the cleaner and they ruined your coat. We got to know first if you're a U.S. national, but we're not going to let you into court. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Well, I shouldn't say that. The things I'm seeing happen are shocking me, but I hope it. <laughs> so here's the thing that I'm going to be running into yeah. is I am going into stores because I'm in California, so commie country, where some stores are putting their foot down and not servicing us. And so we have started to basically threaten them that if they do not allow people entry into their public stores um, and start to uh, discriminate on religious and citizenship status that um, we will take them, the corporation to, to small claims and the employee who is, who's stopping us from going in and servicing us. Sure. Um, yeah. So my thing is, is that when I go into small claims court, if I do is, can you state, to the judge that you are a national well why would you want to do that why tell him something that would just confuse him he would know the difference oh no no i went to school with these i went to law school with these people they wouldn't know the difference i'm telling you uh no they don't you think they're smarter than they are they aren't as smart as you are and probably a lot less oh they might know something about manipulation and how to manipulate the law and what they have to do to get by and make their money i'm just i'm saying again they're just as afraid of you as you are of them. All they're worried about is their retirement. All they're worried about is looking good to their friends. They don't care about what a national is and what a citizen is. Roger, you want to weigh in on that too? Hey, you know, I was thinking about when I was in paralegal school, we had 10 modules, and each module was taught by a practicing attorney, you know. Uh -huh. And I remember one of the modules, and the attorney got up in front of our class, and he said, when you graduate from paralegal school, you'll know more law than the attorney you work for. That's right, but here's the problem. That's true. I, I say the problem that arises with that, knowing that much. Um, there's two things I tell my clients. There's the law, and then there's reality. Yeah. The reality is the courts don't always follow the law. Matter of fact, a whole lot, and it's getting worse. Right. But anybody, I don't care if you've been to law school or, or been to the third grade, anybody can find out what the law is on a given problem if given enough time and resources. That doesn't take brains. It's just to look stuff now, up. Okay, you can do so, it. It may take time. But Don, uh, reality you, is something else, Don. Don, have you ever proffered a lawsuit before? Have you ever been in this arena before? No. Well, no. let me tell you what. It it's it's not it's not a bed of roses. Right. Okay. Um so and the reason for that is see, we're talking about law, but they don't they are talking mostly about procedure. And we don't know procedure. And we got to go in there and adhere to this procedure, this protocol to them. And it's, uh, well, I mean, you know, you know, we don't go through moot courts here and all that kind of stuff like they do in law school. But that's a real big difference I've learned. Most of the graduates from law school graduate knowing very little about the law, but they know one heck of a lot about procedure. Well, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to hedge that statement too, Roger. Okay. Uh, law schools don't even require a moot court. Okay. And lawyers today, that was true at one time. Lawyers today know diddly squat about procedure. 
what is procedure? It is due process. What is due process? That is our common law. And they don't know anything about it. And it's not taught. It's not stressed. Why isn't it stressed? Because most lawyers that are, can make a living do not go to trial. They just work for a corporation or they work for the government. And so due process has receded from our consideration. And with that, procedure is due process. And with that, has receded our rights. The judges sitting on the benches don't know due process. That's my point. Um, because they're not taught it. And due process cannot be learned out of a book. It's got to be learned in trial yeah, and court. There's yeah, that's no right. way to learn it. Um, let me say also, and I had a question about this because we'd mentioned it a while back, and one of the listeners said, what was that? It's a resource for any of you that want to know about how-to law stuff, how to do your own divorce, how to do your own bankruptcy, all that kind of stuff. There's a wonderful resource. Don, I believe it's affiliated, believe it or not, with the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, and, and it's called NOLO Press, N-O-L-O Press. They have an excellent series of how-to law books. And you might want to look in their selection and see if there isn't something on small claims court. And I bet you that there is. There is. And everything in, at NOLO Press is geared toward California law. That's the beauty of being in California is go to NOLO Press. I, I, don't, I think it uh, the, maybe the way it is, the... University of Berkeley, California is a publisher. I don't remember. But if you go to the YouTube, you can find everything you want about how to approach a case. And these fellows that write these books, write them for people that aren't lawyers that want to go to court. Mm -hmm. And they answer the simple questions that everybody has about that. They're really good books. I agree. Uh, Roger. Thanks. Okay, so... Got to be caught by the law, not taught by the law. Right? <laughs> that is Brent Allen Winters trust law first week. <laughs> did, I, did I say that? And I yield. <laughs> Sustained. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, Don. So right here's now. my dilemma out here is that they make you wear a mask to go inside the court. Well, if I'm suing because I'm not wearing a mask to go inside a store, how am I going to sue them if they won't let me inside the court? Do I say, fine, I'll wear the mask, but under duress? Well, you file paper. The only thing you can do in that case that I can think of right off the top of my head is file an action in, in federal court for violation of civil rights under the 14th Amendment. But you may not want to do that because you may not want to acknowledge the 14th Amendment. Yeah, correct. Yeah, see? But that's the, that's the, the remedy that they have said we have. Now, is it possible to go into state court with an action like that? And the answer is yes. You can also go into state court uh, under the civil rights statutes of your state, I imagine. I'm pretty sure most states have those. Uh, some of them uh, track along with the Civil Rights Act and then Section 1983 of the federal courts. So you can go into California court, just file a paper with the court and, and don't go into court. Just uh, you can file a paper, send it to them, put it in a file, start a case and say, I'm being denied my fundamental right, fundamental right to petition government file papers in court and to be and to do process i don't have access to the courts now this you put your finger on on the probably the most egregious and dangerous thing that's happened in all of this what is it same thing that happened to jack henson down between the rivers and uh, down there between the cumberland and the tennessee rivers there were no courts to take his grievance to no courts they'd shut them all down so that's where we are today if you've got to go into the court with a diaper on your head 
That's not going into court. That's not a public trial. That doesn't enable you to cross-examine witnesses, to face accusers, etc. And look at the judge and see the expressions on his face when he's talking. <laughs> That's really important. Go ahead. Uh, I wanted to add this because this may be important. It's an interesting wrinkle, to say the least, and it came up yesterday. Uh, what I've been instructing uh, students to do is to weaponize their uh, new status with the state officials by putting the attorney general of the state and all of the local officials, you know, a DA or the uh, uh, the sheriff, the police, maybe the coroner, maybe the public health official, all those kind of people, and tie them in to the notice to the attorney general based on uh, the laws of agency, notice to the principals, notice to the agent, except reversal, you know, reciprocal. Um, now, when we first sent Dawn and, and another one of her, she's got a nice little group growing out there in Southern California, and uh, they sent in a notice to the Attorney General, and we didn't put, I didn't instruct them to put, we weren't thinking about it at that point, uh, legal lawful notice at the top. We just put notice to the principal's notice to the agent. And so when they wrote back, you read the letter yesterday, Don. You, if you can drag that up, you want to read that to Brent, if you can get a hold of it real quick, because yeah, uh, because they specifically mention in here, they took it wrong and they're saying, we don't give legal advice, but then they specifically allude to however we uh, oversee the rights of private citizens. I forget how they, they yeah. uh, worded it, but they yeah. specifically isolated private citizens versus as public citizens and i just thought it was very interesting so even the attorney general of california recognizes this uh even though it wasn't really specifically as clear as probably should have been on our end don have you got that because it's a very short letter i do um and i did put legal lawful notice i just also put not to be construed as a fine okay okay and that was irs language so that may have been what threw them off here right uh, so it says, we appreciate hearing from citizens on matters of public concern. However, we are prohibited by law from representing private individuals on providing legal advice, legal research, or legal analysis to private individuals under any circumstances. We recommend that you consult a private attorney, and then they gave a number for the state bar and all this kind of stuff. Well, that proves my point. They didn't have a clue what you're talking about. Yeah. Lawyers don't. Judges don't. You put them on notice. You made it clear as crystal. You said legal notice for, to the agents and uh, the principal and all that stuff. All the legal stuff is there. They don't have a clue what you're talking about. They got a bunch of bureaucratic-minded uh, lawyers out of law school, yeah. girls and boys. They're, they're just happy, and their parents are proud of them that they're lawyers. And, <laughs> and working for the state. Around, acting like they're important. <laughs> they, they're working for the big attorney general. The attorney general has nothing on his mind, nothing except running for governor or congressman <laughs> or something. And, and he writes those letters just to make sure he stays in good graces with everybody. He doesn't know what he's saying either. It's just a matter of form. <laughs> There's no question about it, what, what I'm saying. Go ahead. So this is the, because the, I have to resend it. I screwed up and I had to do another affidavit. So I'm uh -huh. resending. And uh -huh. this is, now this is going to be my cover letter to them this uh -huh. time. It says, I am not, even though I say legal lawful notice at the top, I say, I am not requesting legal advice. I am notifying you of my newly revised citizenship evidence, which is now on file with the Secretary of State of the United States in D.C. I suggest you read my attached affidavit and adjust your actions accordingly. 
As you will see, it states, I am not a citizen of the United States as contemplated by the 14th Amendment. I do not reside in any state with the intention of receiving from the federal government or any other party a protection against the legislative power of the state pursuant to the authority of the 14th Amendment. The affidavit declares that I am a national, a citizen of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and a citizen of the United States of America under the constitutional contract of 1787. This makes me non-resident to the residency and alien to the um, to the citizenship of the 14th Amendment. As such, I am not subject to the jurisdictional statements of the United States codes. Notice to the principal is notice to the agent. Notice to the agent is notice to the principal. Sincerely, me. Man, I want to tell you now, listen, Brent, this girl just got turned on to our stuff, what, 90 days ago, Don? In November. Okay. So for all you people that are talking about how hard this is and all the complexity, I hope you paid attention to what Don just read you. That was excellent. Well, it's well written and gets the point across. But I question, I question where, wait, I question whether or not that should be sent. And I have reasons why. And I'll let somebody else talk and then we can talk more later. Okay. Well, before she has to run, I think she probably wants to know about what you just said. <laughs> I have a comment for Don. I can stay on 15 more minutes. Go for it. Yeah, go for your comment. Or what do I want to talk, Roger? Well, I yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to put in the ecclesiastical when you can with these guys, because I think it's important to get the real judge of everything involved in our legal matters. And... This is from a a judge. He says, A judge has been granted by the Lord God Almighty immense power to judge his creation, we the people. But But along with that power goes immense responsibility. In that day, the Lord on the day of judgment will hold the judge to a higher standard of judgment. That's beautiful. Yeah. Here's the reason why. No, I... I wish I could have copies of all these things you're saying. You're, they're well written. <clears throat> here's the excuse me. Here's the reason why I I would hesitate. If if somebody were my client and gave me that and said, "Should I send this?" I my first thought would be no, for two reasons right off the top. Number one, the people you're sending it to won't have a clue what you're talking about. That's true. Uh, number two, the assertions you make in there are like poking a grizzly bear in the eye. Because you're telling them you have no authority over me at all. And at some point, and you're dealing with your enemy. You're not dealing with your friends. Uh, and when, when you're dealing with your enemy, you know, we wrote, for example, the Declaration of 76, which was of the same tenor, kind of, what you've said. We said, we're, we no longer have anything to do with you. We've cut all political bands that tie us together. We've done all we can do. I'm, we're sorry it has to be this way. We're not out to fight a war, but here's what you've done to us. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. Now, that's what you're saying there. And I say, you're dealing with, you're dealing with the evil one. You're dealing with evil men, useful idiots and useful lesbians and perverts and sodomites of the evil empire. Do I really want to communicate with these people that much? That's my question. And my sense of the matter is, no, I don't want to. I don't want to communicate with them. That's like casting your pearls before swine, in other words. And like the Savior says, then they'll turn and rip you to shreds. And I know what it means to be ripped to shreds by by hogs. I've seen hogs do it to men. It's a nasty sight. 
<clears throat> they're nasty critters and they're infectious and dirty and all those things. So I don't, that's the analogy he uses. You're, should, should I say you're dealing with pigs? No, but I'll say what Peter the Apostle says. They are as unreasoning beasts, good for nothing, to, but to be caught and killed. I'm quoting from the Bible, from the epistle of Peter. Now, Peter does not say they are unreasoning beasts. He's using an analogy, a simile. A simile. He's saying they are as an unreasoning beast, and an unreasoning beast is good for nothing but to be caught and killed and eaten or skinned. That's what he's saying. He didn't say to do that. That's not his point at all. But he does say that's what they're like. Our country now is under the control of sodomites, sex perverts, of every ilk. And for us to think that their brains are working is silliness on our part. It's silly. Then the Bible tells us clearly their brains are not working. God, I'm speaking point blank. This is what it means by what it says in Romans chapter 1. God has abandoned their brains. That's the way I paraphrase, and I, I'm fully convinced that's an accurate paraphrase of what Paul the Apostle says. By the time you've gotten to that point, you are brainless. It's brainless to do the things they're doing. And then carry that brainlessness on out and say, I have authority and I can do this, and I can do that, and now we're going to have a, a summer of love while people are murdering each other in the streets of Seattle. That's brainlessness. And that's what you're dealing with. How much do you really want to communicate with this, these people? Right. How much do you want to say to them, here's what the truth is? Go ahead, Roger. Well, what I, this is what I've been instructing people to do or suggesting that they do. I don't tell them anybody to do any of this, okay? Yeah, yeah. But once you've got that on file with the head guy, the, you know, let's say this. Let's put it this way. The Secretary of State's not going to go out and alert all the federal and state agencies that Dawn has changed her political status. <clears throat> Okay. Well, she already did that, right? Well, she already did that, or she wouldn't be doing this, but or anybody else. But you got to do that first. But what this is is taking and taking the idea of due process and 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 weaponizing is what I kind of think of it as weaponizing your new position and your new status there, especially in your state. But you can also do it with federal agencies. In other words, we've uh, got people sending the IRS uh, a cover letter with that affidavit and telling them, uh, you know. Hey, I, I'll pay all the eight seventy one and eight seventy seven B taxes I ever owe. You know, see you later. Uh, but once again, you're putting them on notice and taking a little bit of an offense, a porcupine stance, if you no, will. I get, I get the point. I would, but I would say this also, Roger, um, just to be extremely accurate, to try to be anyway. That's what we do here. Um, Dawn did not change her status at all by sending the State Department that letter. Dawn affirmed her status. Oh, okay. Is, am I right? You tell yeah. Me. Okay. Well, okay. yeah. What what you, what Dawn did, and everybody else does when you submit that, is you're re rebutting a presumption of law that's mm -hmm. based on fraud. Mm -hmm. You're not so changing. You're exposing are. the fraud, yeah. and you're claiming yeah. your correct position. Yeah. Is that a better yeah. way to yeah. put it? Yeah, I I think we need to be real accurate as we talk about it and as people do it, because um, you want to be careful. Well. My, my thinking is this, Roger, and this is an opinion. It's not, it's not the law. But this is, this is uh, how do you get along in this crazy world, my opinion. Uh, you might have to tell, it might be good to tell somebody, like the State Department, uh, affirm your status. 
but I don't know that a flurry of letters uh, to anybody else would matter. Now, maybe I'm, I haven't thought this one through yet because Don just brought this up to me and I haven't thought it through. I'm just giving him my initial impression, mm-hmm. impressions, but she's talking about filing this with the head man in California. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's bad, but then I question this. I question this. Do you need to explain all that? Because you're making assertions there that uh, could be used against you very much. Matter of fact, I've seen that happen a lot. Uh, used against you in court uh, if the the unthinkable happens and the unthinkable can happen. Well, well let me tell you what I what I'm kind of, what we instruct people if they want to follow through on this to do mm-hmm. is you you're putting in the state system now you're letting the head legal guy in the state. We used to think about the secretary of state too, but we found out is that the secretary of state's more involved with incorporating businesses and making sure they pay their right annual fees mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. and because of a situation in Connecticut is how it came out. Well, who do you send it to? Well, who, let's send it to the head law guy. And that, of course, is the attorney general. And then what I've told people to do is to take the key people in your county or parish and copy them on your notice to the attorney general and send them the copy and tie them together through the laws of agency and that that should at least let them know or you know that it, it, and the end thing is should they come and mess with you that they've since they've been put on notice they've lost their cloak of immunity and they're acting outside of their delegated responsibilities well i understand your point roger and the point's well taken i'm just wondering if it might be smart to send what you sent to the State Department, send those papers to uh, the uh, head man, the Attorney General of California, and don't try to practice law to them. They, they claim that they have no authority to give you legal advice. Well, then why would you want to give them legal advice? Well, it may be, you know, that may be a good point, Don, yes, and just say this. Please, well, this is what I suggest people put in a cover letter, okay? Don, Don uh, uh, put her own in there, and that's fine, okay, and I appreciate that. Just please find the enclosed, and I use the term citizenship evidence because that's what the State Department calls it internally, okay? Mm-hmm. Please find the enclosed citizenship evidence or affidavit of citizenship evidence now on file with the Secretary of State of the United States of America. Please place this firmly and permanently in my administrative file and adjust your records and your actions accordingly. And that's about all I ever tell people to put on the cover letter. I think that's good. I worked for a lawyer in Prescott, Arizona years ago and uh, he asked me he asked me to go do research on a firearm, and he was legal counsel at that time to a uh, gun site, which was, as far as mm-hmm. I know, the only marksmanship school in the country that right. really amounted to anything. There are many now, but I was out there in north of Scottsdale. They wanted to import a British sniper rifle, a certain kind, and they had uh, they didn't want to break the law, so they told this fellow, will you please find the law on it? So he sent me out to find the law on it. I spent two, three days. I compiled everything you could possibly compile pile from the federal statutes and codes and cases about what we would have to do to to uh, get this sniper rifle into the United States and not get in trouble. And uh, came back to him and he said, what's this? I said, that's all the stuff, uh, all the information uh, on the law, the law now I'm talking about. He said, shoot, he said, you didn't have to do all that. He said, all you needed to do was call the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and ask them what we had to do. He said, it doesn't make any difference what all this stuff says. You think they follow this stuff? No, he said, but they'll try to prosecute people that uh, do something they don't like, whatever that might be. And we're, our job is to keep this guy out of jail. 
it was Cooper at that time. Remember Cooper? Bill Cooper? Uh, Colonel Cooper. Cooper oh. Colonel Cooper. He's the man that said uh, an armed society is a polite society. Oh, okay. Yeah. Remember that guy? Sure do. Yeah. He's gone now. But uh, So the lesson there, and then he said this to me, and this is what stuck with me. The law is only good for the courtroom. The law is only good for the courtroom. It's not good for anything else, really. And outside of the courtroom, people make their own agreements, do what they want to do, and life is free. In a free country, the law is only good for the courtroom. And I've never forgotten it, and I have found it to be true. In most cases, there are always exceptions. So don't be arguing the law to bureaucrats, is what I'm saying. That's a, that's a very valid point, Don, yeah, uh, and I appreciate what Bron said, uh, Brent saying. Also, Brent, do you think BATF agents, if you call them and ask them no more than IRS agents, if you ask them about no. the IRS? <laughs> no, the IRS, same deal. They don't know the law. They'll just tell you what they're told to do, and you better do it, or you know, there'll be a problem. So let's keep in mind there's a difference between law and reality, as I started out saying. Um, there's the way things are. And then there's reality. And a lawyer, a lawyer, uh, if he's a lawyer, uh, worth his salt, he won't just tell you what the law is. You, you probably already know that. Most people do. They, can just, they know what right and wrong is. Either you got stolen from or you didn't. Somebody wronged you or they didn't. But then to say, here's reality. Uh, I'm an officer of the court, and I'll tell you what the courts will probably do in this situation. Well, but, but they can't do that. What do you mean they can't do that? They do it all day, every day. That's what a lawyer will tell you. Here's what the course will do. So let's use a strategy here, and let's do this, and let's do that. For example, in this case, I would advise. I'm glad that you brought that up, Don, because I needed to work through that. And Roger and I were talking, brainstorming this thing, and I think that Roger has kind of affirmed my point, so that makes me feel a little better about it too. Yeah, don't be arguing the law to these people. They don't care. That's why my my philosophy with this and instructing anybody on this stuff mm -hmm. is to keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, yeah. Fact. You know, the That's old kid, the keep it simple, hard. stupid, pro, yeah. uh, you know, uh, theory. Yeah. Okay, so just keep the cover letter as simple as possible. And then let the affidavit speak for itself. If they don't read the affidavit, then that's on them. At least I have proof that yeah. I've given well, it to them. You know, and let me just say, from, from, see, they tipped their hand a little bit when on that first one because they right. made a differentiation between a private citizen and a public citizen. Yeah. Right. But I have another request, though, Don. Uh -huh. Would you be so kind as to go to my email? You've done such a good, such a good job of writing that. I would like to have a copy of it. I think you said it very clearly. Would you do that? Sure. Absolutely. That's a request I have. Please, yeah, I'll send it. Go to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. There's a contact page there, and just drop it in the email. I'm going to contemplate what you've said a little further. You've well, other inquiring minds would like a copy also. Inquiring <laughs> minds. <laughs> Stick it in the chat, Don. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just as a parting word, um, I was born with a target on my back. So um, my philosophy is. You mean to, you were born, you were born a Democrat. I was born with a, um, I, I don't like, uh, I don't like people taking advantage of other people. And so I will speak up just like Jesus spoke up. Like I'm someone who, goes i don't want to like cause trouble but i'm not going to back down from the truth and this to me is the truth and it, it, it's i pure truth 
Yeah. And so whatever may come is God's will. And so well, I let's, just, not, let's not forget, though, Jesus spoke up because he was trying to start a fight and get himself murdered. That's why he did it. <laughs> I'm not trying to start a fight and get myself murdered. As a, no, he said he, he said that. That's why he did what he did. He was trying to egg them on to kill him. So that's, yeah, why job. He, that's why he came. I don't want that. Exactly, Don. Be ready to be crucified. <laughs> you know, Don, when you were saying that, it reminded me of an old Gary Larson. You know that cartoonist, Gary Larson? It's so funny. Uh, yeah, right. The two deers. And there on the tree behind him is a sign that says, Deer Season Opening Day. Right. And one of the deers has got a bullseye on his forehead. And the other one says, bummer of a birthmark. Yeah, well, I've already made myself a target at work for speaking up and trying to get a group together of people fighting the vaccine mandate. So, you know, this is what happens when you're an instigator for freedom. This is it's the consequences. I don't want to take a gun and and go and storm the castle. (laughs) I want to take knowledge and storm the castle. There you go. It's it's a lot more fun. It's a lot safer. (laughs) Yeah, I got I got another comment. Go ahead, Sam. Uh, on February 29th, 1892, there was a, uh, one of the first uh, Supreme Court cases. It was Holy Trinity uh, v. Uh, United States. And the Supreme Court stated that early on that this was a Christian nation. Yes. So if you're a Christian nation and you decide you don't want to put a diaper on your head, I think the judge might go with that. Well, you're going to have to tie it, tie it, though, to a course. That's good. I'm glad you brought that up, of course. And we want to tie it to, to uh, we have to be able to get religious liberty under the First Amendment. A fellow has to be able to articulate why he didn't want to put a diaper on his head. In other words, you got to be able to say something like, uh, well, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, God gave me the, the nephesh, the breath of life. And I don't want to impede that to despise the gift is to despise the giver or something like that. And there are other ways that can, can, that can be approached, but you have to be able to articulate what you're saying, and you have to be able to show that it is a conviction and not a preference. And the way you show it's a conviction, you'd be able to get in front of the court and say, it's been two years now. I've been thrown out of two or three different places. Uh, my family has abandoned me because I won't put a diaper on my head. I've never put a diaper on my head, and I won't do it because it's a conviction. I don't care what you do to me. You can throw me in jail. You can try me in federal court. You can uh, crucify me. It's got to be a a conviction that death does not move. That's what the Supreme Court said in Wisconsin versus Yoder, the religion clause of the First Amendment. That's a high standard. um, But it is doable. I know a lot of people, and I, for example, the diaper on the head, yeah, I'm I'm not for that, and I've not wore a diaper yet. Don't intend to. But the, the jab? If it comes to that, I think people would be even more convicted. Uh, of course, conviction is not a matter of degree. Either you're convicted or you aren't. That's the Supreme Court's point. If you're convicted, it's no longer a preference can be exceedingly strong and go on for years, and then you have one hiatus, one point where you gave in, and if the other side, the government, can show that you gave in at that one point, they, they threaten to throw your wife in jail, so you gave in, well, that's not, that's not a conviction then. 
they threatened to throw me in jail and I'm not giving in. Okay, you did that. But they threatened to throw your wife in jail and you gave in. That's not a conviction. So this conviction standard is high under the First Amendment. It's important that not only you have a conviction about what you're doing, you can articulate it, number two, said the court. And number three, you got to be able to prove that you've never wavered. That's a high standard, hard to do. Back to you, Roger. Wow. Uh, Don, you got a split. You got any other questions or comments before you have to run off? Uh, no. Okay. Well, I sure want to, again, commend you on, on how much you've absorbed and the way you've attacked this and uh, the way you've made the commitment and that you see the powerful uh, aspect of what we got here. You know, when we're young, and as I was mentioned the other day, in vacation, Bible school, whatever exposure you had to those types of institutions when you're young, hopefully you had a lot, and we'd hear things about how powerful the truth is. But, you see, when you're young, you can't put that in a context that you can understand. Okay, they're just kind of words. But let me tell you what: you get into this and grab Excalibur here and start swinging Excalibur, you'll learn about the truth and how powerful it is because it makes these bastards stand mute. And that's no no uh, criticism of their mothers, but um, we also it's their father. Yeah, yeah, we we also appreciate Don uh, bringing this up. And hanging in with us to we uh, kind of has through it. Yeah. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you for answering me. Okay. See you next week, okay? Will do. Hey, hey, Roger. Yes. I want to ask Samuel where he got hey, that quote from. Samuel? If Sa- that's from Stamper? It, it's actually a, a, a quote. It's the last paragraph of the back of his book, uh, Fruit of the Poisonous Tree, but it's another judge commenting on on the book it's not stamper oh uh, okay because uh don was wandering in the chat so and i was too okay thank you mm-hmm. is that the that's the fruits from the poisonous tree yes okay i don't want to go billy goat but he has a question on passports Roger. come on billy bring it and, bring uh, it okay and brent yes here we go Microphone's unmuted. You guys hear me? Yep, sure can, Billy. How? Welcome, second day in a row, man. It's a record. So, <laughs> uh, don't get your hopes up, but two, two so far is pretty good. All right, so I typed it in the chat. Roger, do you see stuff in the chat, or you just focus? Well, no, I focus totally on the radio show. So oh. you, you, I like a laser beam because I got to stay up with what's being said and keep on top of things, and those kind of things really distract me. So I don't pay any attention to them, no. It's probably smart because we've all heard those shows where the host is right. checking their cell phone and stuff, and they're yeah. not paying any attention to their guests. Well, you know, right. I've been in this radio stuff since I was in my early 20s. I have learned something along the way. It's funny when the guest will say something or ask a question, the host will be like, yeah, that's that's amazing. Right. <laughs> anyway, so my question here, we'll keep it on track. I, I typed in. I'll just read my question. It's, it's in regards to the five types of passports that I found there are. There's the blue one, which is called the fee, like the regular one. Then a diplomatic black one. Right. I knew that. Official maroon. The service, which is gray. And then the no fee, which is blue, but they just don't charge a fee for it. I don't... 
I, yeah, I'm going to answer you right. I don't know anything about those. I knew there was a black passport because of a retired Secretary of State guy here in Ecuador that mentioned it one day in a, in a story. But I didn't know there was five different types. So you're bringing new information to me even, Billy. Well, now here's what's interesting. That we'll just call it the, the blue regular one. And then the other four are a totally separate category. And they call that category special issuance. Mm-hmm. And the special issuance ones are only good for five years instead of 10. Mm-hmm. And it says that they are not valid for personal travel. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're a diplomat or an official and you're using that passport, mm-hmm. well, you're supposed to be using mm-hmm. it for mm-hmm. diplomatic. That's what, this, that's what this story this guy told us was about right there. Okay. And so I didn't see that concept addressed in your instructions procedure. I didn't. That's because I that's because I didn't know about it. You know, I keep telling you guys this is a process. (laughs) Okay, there's a perfect example of it. All right, thirty years I've been messing with this. About fifteen on this particular side here, and I had no idea. Now I was shocked when that diplomat. We had two retired Secretary of State guys here in our Patriot group. Okay, one of them worked for USAID. Unfortunately, he's from uh, uh, Upper California. Was very liberal, and he worked for USAID his whole career. And he's taken all his jabs. And I'm sure if he, he's not dead, he's about dead already. Because last time he joined us for lunch, he looked like hell, and he was shuffling around like he had the Thorazine shuffle. You know, those guys in a psychiatric ward they give Thorazine to. But this is the story he told. He was talking about going to Mexico, and he had traveled. It was a diplomatic mission, but he had forgot to travel on his black diplomatic passport and had some kind of problems with the trip because he was on his regular personal passport. And that's the first time I'd heard there was a black cover diplomatic passport, but what you just said bears it out that it's only for and he if he was going to Mexico on some specific mission, he would have been traveling on that black diplomatic passport and he wasn't. And so from the procedure though, uh well, I didn't know that you didn't know, but now we all know. So we'll we'll move forward on and that. And, and, so, and and nobody knows. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, and some people are not getting the booklets at all. They're just sending thirty bucks and getting the card. Correct. 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 Okay. So I don't know now if the cards themselves have different designations on them as well. I would imagine they would. I don't think if people are looking for your same numerical designation and you've got both. I don't think you're going to find that it correlates between the card and the booklet. The booklet, and the only reason you need a booklet is to travel internationally. And that's because they can't put visa stamps on your passport card. Okay, When you're going into another country, the country stamps the day you came in and the country stamp. And then you've got, with most countries, 90 days as a tourist visa. And when you leave, they put another stamp, hopefully close to next to the other one, that the day you left. Okay, And you can look through somebody, especially that's a traveler. Sometimes people travel so much that they have to go back to the State Department and get them turn in their active passport and get them to put extra visa pages in because their visa pages are full okay i've heard of that happening so uh that's the only reason that you need that booklet but when you go into another country they take the booklet and they open it up to that picture page where it's got the digital information at the bottom and the code and they swipe it through this swiper thing and they can see what pops up of course you can't and that's that that bureaucratic high 
high uh, security or whatever uh, profile there where they've got all of your information listed. And uh, that's the difference. The year that I got my first passport, Billy, was 2007. And that was the year that right before summer, uh, whoever, I, uh, whoever, I guess it was Bush. Bush must have been the president. And they changed the law on traveling to adjacent countries. And up until that point, if you were going to a cruise on Carnival Cruise Lines or something or going to Canada or Mexico uh, or going to the Caribbean, all you needed was a driver's license. But they changed it that year, and you had to have a passport and a passport card, and that changed the whole ball game. It took me a lot, a long time to get my passport because they changed it close to the summer, if I remember, and everybody that already had summer plans had to get in there and expedite their passport apps and get their cards so they could continue with their already paid for plans. So I'm not sure if that clarifies anything you were asking, but there's a little background for you. Well, I. In talking to other people, it seems that everybody has the blue regular one. Yeah, that's what the standard issue, if you will. Standard issue. And then looking at the – I got a screenshot here. I think it was from the application itself where they have these, like, peach-colored boxes on it. And it, I, there's no, like, checkbox where you can say, I'm applying for the diplomat. I'm applying for no. whatever. No, they but, make that decision. Right. Okay. And but there is an area, and it says notice to applicants for no fee, regular, uh, no fee regular, the service official or diplomat. So notice to applicants who want one of the other four versions, and it says you may use this application if you meet all of the provisions listed. However, you must consult your sponsoring agency for instructions on the proper routing procedures before forwarding this application, and. Your completed passport will be released to your sponsoring agency for forwarding to you. Okay, so you got to have a sponsor, and it's got to be an agency, right? And then I'm thinking, oh, am I my own sponsoring agency? I wouldn't imagine that's what how they're wording that. I was getting pretty nervous about that concept. So now there are a few people that somehow got the diplomat or the you know one of these other ones and i don't know how they did it I well they, they it's a, it seems to be it appears to be a russian roulette type of assignment at the state department ah. because the ones we have found and there's a list i've got a list of internal lists from the state department on those numerical designations and we've had people i believe 77 well, a 77 designation is an ambassador at large I'm not sure which numerical designation, because you guys pay more attention to this than I do, uh, what type of what n- numerical designation is a diplomatic courier, but we've been told people that have filed paperwork are listed as a diplomatic carrier. Now, Billy, let's look at this through our enemy's eyes, okay? There's a lot of bureaucrats that see these profiles and stuff in the background the, that you probably have to have a you have to have an employee or top secret clearance to see. Okay, now well, and, 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 hold on. Just so I understand that's the TSA, the cops, any that's what you mean. Well, I, I yes, I guess so. Okay, and okay. so uh, in the back when they pull up that profile, you file an affidavit. Let's say hypothetically here, and now you've uh, overcome the presumption that you're a citizen of the United States and you're a national. They're not going to have a little box there on that page with all the information on it that says Billy caught us. He's a state citizen. Okay? They don't want the bureau. They've gone to great lengths to hide this. They're not going to put anything that really designates it where everybody else internally could see it. 
Okay, that's my thinking on this. I don't know this gospel. Okay, so to me, that's why they're going in and assigning all these different things, either national O nine, and that could be a national or non citizen national. Evidently, again, we don't know. Okay, we don't have a definitive answer here. But I've had people that did look at their profiles, had somebody with a top secret clearance look at their profile, and come back and say you're listed as a diplomatic courier. When we were going over these codes one day somebody came on the air that had 77 which is an ambassador at large so it seems to me that they and you see those statuses those things a diplomatic courier and ambassador at large would have the same types of rights and protections that a state citizen national would have and so to me they're using those designations to hide the fact that they don't have a box to say billy caught us he's an old state citizen does that make sense to you? Uh, I think so. I'm over time. It will. I'm listening to your other recordings and stuff like that. But uh, are you saying? I don't know. Are those numbers actually on the card or passport? Or yeah, yes, they are. They're on the passport card. But some people only have the card and not even the passport. Well, and there's no sense to have the passport book and spend the hundred and thirty dollars or whatever it is if you're not going to do any international traveling. Because yeah. I'm going to tell you what, anybody that leaves the country and comes down here, the first thing you sit down and say, go to a copy store, get your passport copied with plastic lamination on it, and don't take your passport out. Because if it gets lost or stolen, it is a pain in the rear end to get that thing replaced. Well, and that's another reason that I would want the card and the passport. At least I'd have two items to use well i mean look it's an individual decision i'm not going to tell anybody what to do okay but uh, you can do what you want if you got the money spend it if that's what you want to do but i'm just telling you that uh, the best i know to answer your question i think they arbitrarily designate and utilize these uh, uh, these labels that we've gone over here because they mimic the rights and duties that a state national state citizen national would have but they don't have a place on the back where it says state citizen national i may be wrong i'm just kind of speculating because i don't have a top security clearance and blinken hadn't returned my calls <laughs> you're, you're not on blinken's uh, priority list. thank god <laughs> yeah i guess so well okay i'm i'm just going to fill it out as instructed and go from there and if that's if they come back and send me a black diplomat or something they won't I, we've never had anybody that happen to anybody they're going to do the standard oh, okay. issue okay and it just like it says warning you can attach documentation comma including affidavits so write you out a simple affidavit doesn't have to be 32 pages thank goodness it can be one sentence go get it notarized get, fill out that uh, passport application do you already have a passport billy i do okay well you'll use a ds 50 50 82 i think that's it so that's the renewal form and is the one you've got active it is I think okay whether well, you're going to have to uh, send it in with your application they'll send it right back to you okay but they want you my, to my knowledge they want you to send that in and then they'll send you your new one under your new legal personality w- w- in whatever time frame it is they get it processed um i'm on it okay okay well done but 80 87 days 
Uh, well, there's a lot to learn here, and you know, you 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 do this like you eat an elephant one bite at a time. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot you can learn. Uh, try and as I as I try and impress on people, try and the best you can to absorb this information and and convert it into concepts as opposed to minutia because you'll learn it a lot better understand it a lot quicker and you'll be able to explain it to others a lot more easily if you dwell in the conceptual side as apart from going and ripping through all these statutes regulations etc that's how i live my life and what i find is uh if you understand the concept if you take the time to understand the concepts behind it instead of just mere rote of, of you know numbers and statutes and stuff then you can be uh, intelligent and questioned about that in any way and then figure out an answer versus if you didn't memorize something and somebody asks you a conceptual question that you never got to. You're, you're, right. kinda, you're lost. Wait. You're a deer in the headlight. You know, the example I use, the analogy, I guess, is a child. And if you go buy a child a puzzle with 15 pieces versus one of the 1,500, which ones are going to put together quicker? Yep. Okay. So thank you, Billy. Glad to have you. What what part of the country did you tell us? Did I ask you that you're in? Did not. I'm Midwest. Okay. I'm uh, U.S. Midwest. And, okay. Uh, uh, I don't know. If, I, I just have one very quick question, if you want to cover it now or not, but I don't understand the word state. In that, I think of the state I live in, but then there's the state department for the whole okay. United States. Okay. Well, and I can, think I'm maybe not understanding things. Can is there I, a real easy conceptual way well there there is and and i i would point you to that very important critical almost and especially these days that critical policy statement from the state department the we're at travel.state.gov have you heard us direct people there a certificate of non-citizen nationality okay now underneath the body of that policy statement that's so useful for us because it shows and proves we've got a dual political status they go into i don't know why they did this but it's just so helpful i really appreciate whoever wrote this up you go under a little bit and it starts referring you back to the sections of the ina that it references above you know and there at the first and i'm not sure how deep you can go find it uh you your eyes are no doubt better than mine and it says, according to this section of the INA, and there's a single-sentence statement there, and it says a national, notice it doesn't say a non-citizen national, a national owes total allegiance to a small s state. I, I, that is so critically important. But, you got again, you got to know some background information and some of these basics to totally understand its importance. And the key thing there is it says owes total allegiance. That's one of the key things. So there's half of the jurisdictional formula. Allegiance for protection, protection for allegiance. So a national owes total allegiance to a small s state. So that, if you understand those things, there's your state citizen right there. Okay, because that means the small s state owes him total protection, and now you've got the jurisdictional nexus and formula fulfilled. Now, if you'll go down just a few paragraphs, they go over what a federal state is, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the territories, and it's a capital S. So your federal states are capital S, and your small s are the original states. Does that help? And that's just pertaining to this? 
or no, that, that, that's how you're going to find it all through their statutes. That's their nomenclature. So it's the smallest state is like uh, uh, California, right? Iowa, Nebraska, you're out there where you are. Yep, all of them. Another way. Here's another way to look at, and the way these guys are so tricky. If you go over that statement, uh, a, a national owes total allegiance to a small s state, is the very first thing in a very key piece of legislation that's in the organic statutes at large, the real organic law of the United States. Back in 1940, when they set all this up to accomplish this, and it's an organic statute act called the the nationality act in 1940 so right at the first of world war one when everybody's distracted see how they do things and at the first of that act there's a number of definitions and that one i just read to you is a so right there under big bold letters nationality act in 1940 here's a string of definitions there's number a a national owes total allegiance to a small s state and it goes back to what i've been able to one day the subconscious the big guy i guess gave it to me these guys always put the hook at the very front of everything they're doing you can see it in all the jurisdictional statements of the Code of Federal Regulations. 14th Amendment, all persons born. There's the hook right there. Right here in the Nationality Act of 1940, there's your state citizen definition A. There's other examples. Those just three that come off the top of my head. And you can understand when you realize you're, you know your enemy a little bit and see that, you can understand why they do it that way. Because you're looking at this big, thick book and thinking you got to go through there and find some answer, and they put the hook right right on the first page you ever going to look on the first page and dwell on it probably not see see how these guys work and and when you the more you unpack this and understand it the more you undress them and the more you undress them the easier they are to beat quite frankly it's almost like they're trying to take me from sovereign to surf and that the government is doing it by treachery and deception no come on they wouldn't do that uh, so anyway that's a, a, a that's a, there's your answer it's the largest state and the smallest state of the original states here's another way you could go back if you wanted to do it uh in the uh, internal revenue code back before 1958 when alaska and hawaii were put in as states they were listed as capital s states and when they made them states they took them out of that designation Because they weren't federal territories anymore. I appreciate that clarification because it's just more of those words. Oh, listen, this thing is just a minefield. I mean, it really is a minefield. I've been walking through it for 30 years, you know, got got blown up a time or two, too, you know. And, of course, that's how you learn. So we're happy to have you along, Billy, and there's probably a bunch of other people listening that needed clarification on that, too, you know. Thank you, sir. And they probably have more questions here, too. Okay, well, we'll be back next week, or we got a little time left here. And we usually try and kind of turn it over to Brent, but I think Brent's probably enjoying this because he doesn't hear this type of stuff usually when he's on with us, do you, Brent? Oh, this is fun. I, I like it. I like people to interact, and that's what we're getting today, and that's what makes it worthwhile. Yeah. While Brent's here, any of you got any questions for him? I mean, he's a, he's an attorney, and he's uh, been here. We It took us a few years to hammer this into him, but I think we finally got it across. And so if any of you have got any more specific questions or, or spiritual or, you know, eschatology, 
ethical questions. Is that the right way to pronounce it? And Brent's here, and we got a few minutes left. Now's your time. Brent, can you opine on uh, Anna Von Ritz and what she's trying to do? I've talked to Francine about it, and she cautioned me. I'm just wondering what your what your uh, thoughts are. I know Roger's uh, given his thoughts of guru hopping. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> well, as I well, we pointed this out before. Uh, I make it a point not to follow women as leaders. I don't do that. And the reason I don't do it is because God commands me not to. It's not because I don't like them. It's not because I don't think they're smarter than I am. It's not because I don't think they're even stronger than I am in many ways. It's just because God said, and that ends the matter. It's the way things are, and they're not going to change. And it's the judgment of our country that this is happening. I'm, I am amazed. I'm amazed about how many thousands of people follow her. Uh, it's, it's shocking. Without giving an opinion, I don't know whether she's right or wrong. There are a lot of gals that are right about a lot of things. But it's not my job. As a matter of fact, it's against my job to just follow along as though they're in charge and they're the leader. That's wrong. That's what's our, our nation is now under that judgment in the churches, in the government, in the courts, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what your arguments are. It's of no consequence. If God said it, that ends it. People say, oh, women can go serve in the military. They've proven they can fight. They've proven. Sure. You get take a bunch of women and get, them, and get between them and their children. They're going to fight like rattlesnakes. That doesn't mean that that's what God said to allow had to happen in every case. We are to do what God says. We got problems in this country. And the most fundamental problem to government in America is, as it has always been, is that men follow women, period, end of paragraph, end of sentence. There's nothing more to it. Um, is it any mystery why uh, the first story in the Bible, the first narrative, the first record is about the struggle between a man and a woman and how the whole race of Adam plunged itself into utter depravity and darkness because, as God said to our grandpa Adam, because you followed your wife. Now, I'm going to put it more in tune with the Hebrew text. Because you followed your woman. That's not doesn't really mean wife, necessarily. It means woman. It's not a bad word. I'm just making the point. Um, are, are, are gals smarter than us? In a lot of, yeah. Should we listen to them? Oh, yeah. I listen to my mother still. 90 years old. I listen to her. I listen to my wife. I listen to my other female friends. Because on a lot of things, they see things are smarter than me. But to follow Anna von Reitz, well, I, I, I can't apply God's standards to anybody. But I blame sure can tell you what I know they mean, where I know I know. Now, if there's speculation and ambiguity about what the law is, I try to be disciplined to say so. But this I know. Jesus Christ referred back, cited the creation narrative just to show, Paul the Apostle did the same thing, to show the arrangement of authority between men and women. The family's broken down, women are being abused, children are being abused by exponential numbers greater than they were last year and the year before, and increasingly the judgment of God is on us. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, women and children rule over you. Oh, he says, Isaiah says, uh, he's 
echoing God's words, Oh, my people. My people? Ha'am, the Hebrew word, means militia. The males, not the females. Oh, my people, women and children rule over you. Well, that's why I look at everything through that initial lens, and I see the problem. There never will be sound government in America or in Canada or, or Britain unless and until men take up their responsibilities, and they're not doing that. It's too easy. Oh, just let the gals decide. They'll take care of it. Well, there are things they do take care of because it's their jurisdiction, and you don't interfere in it. You let them take care of that unless you see some danger. But I was saying before when we first started, it's the purpose for no, 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 the, the jurisdiction of every male to defend the dignity and keep and defend, be the safekeeper of the dignity of his family. That's no small task. Matter of fact, that's a brutal task. If you've tried it, try, just try maintaining your own dignity. How indignified are you? I'll tell you exactly how undignified you are. You are as undignified as you do not know and safeguard and do the law of God. That's how undignified you are, and it gets real rotten real quick. That's why we have need of a Savior. But in the meantime, because he's given us a new heart, we have the mind of Christ, says the apostle. Well, what's the mind of Christ? It's the Bible. We have it, he says. We have it right in our hands. What do you know about it? Anything? Are you in it daily? If you're not, you're going to be going down that road of undignified behavior. And it will tear down the dignity of those who, of whom you're responsible if you have children. It will confuse them. You have a wife. Remember, I repeat this over and over. God did not castigate our grandma Eve for what happened in the Garden of Eden like he went after Adam. And the reason is, Paul the Apostle tells us in the Newer Testament, because the male, the male is endowed with more discernment than the female. It doesn't say more intelligence. It doesn't say better logic. I stress this often, but more discernment about fundamental things. There never has been in the history of the world a woman philosopher of note. Never has been a woman theologian in Christianity of note. Never. Never has been a woman orator of note. Oh, there have been a lot of them they, they call communicators. Why is that? Because God has wired them different with a different job. A different job. And if they leave the jurisdiction, if any of us leave the jurisdiction God has given us, we will lessen our power by that degree. And now it's happening with the confusion of sexes. That's the bottom fundamental line. And so when you talk about Anna, I just know this. No, I don't, I don't listen to her. I don't listen to her. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't badmouth her. I just don't want to follow her. Uh, I don't follow. What's that other little gal's name that's supposed to be so smart? A patriot, ex-prosecutor, um, a lawyer. Oh, Hall? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure she says nice things. But men... You maintain the dignity of your, yourselves and your family, and it's beneath your dignity to follow women. And the Bible says that it's beneath the dignity of the man and even of God's people to allow a woman to speak in front of the congregation. That's not a matter of culture. Paul the Apostle is the one that said that, and he goes right back to the creation narrative of Adam and Eve, to establish his point. It's that true. It's that fundamental. 
and that important to everything we do. It's the elephant in the room that folk don't want to talk about. I wanted, to talk about it. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you something, Brent, that stuck in my mind. It's a comment you made back for the folks that hadn't been around here long. At one point, when I was in Argentina, Brent had a couple of sponsored trips up to Alaska. Of course, I used to live in Anchorage when I graduated from West Anchorage High School. And so he was up just above Anchorage there in the Matanuska Valley around Palmer and in that area, very, very big agricultural area. And you were brought up there to do some talks and stuff, if I remember right. And it was amazing because I'm, here I am in the southern hemisphere in the upper reaches of Patagonia. And here Brent is up in the Matanuska Valley of Alaska on an Internet feed that was on, the, on a laser beam. And we had a perfect conversation with each of us on different parts of the world. It was really an incredible day. Uh, it made an impression on me, Brent. But you were saying in there that you, when you were given a talk, that Anna came in to your talk and in the back and bought all your copies of all your books. Yeah, and I had done. Yeah, I, well, I wanted to ask, did, did she just buy the books and leave? And why didn't and she may have had a prior engagement or something or had a limited time? But just amazing to me that you're there and she didn't stick around and meet you and say, hey, and, you know, introduce and all that stuff. There may have been a valid reason for it, but I just remembered that stuck in my mind. Well, that did in mind, too. And I was surprised and disappointed she didn't stick around. Uh, books were on a table in the back and we were traveling and speaking at different venue set up and she uh, saw her come in i was up front talking and i recognized her from pictures i'd seen on the internet and then i went back uh when we had a break and all my books were gone she bought every one of them so i'm not criticizing her as i said a while ago but i am criticizing men that follow her and there are a lot of you out there come grow up boys have some dignity it's not that I'm against her, I'm not, and I won't say whether I'm against what she's saying or not saying. That's not the point. She likes my books, and she promotes them. But let's, uh, let's do what God says. Our safety, friends, neighbors, and kin, is in doing, learning God's law of nature. That's our common law, and the laws of nature's God. That's our Bibles written. Learning that and simply doing what the commander tells us to do. There is hey, no other safety in this life. Go ahead. Doug? Yeah. I love you guys. <laughs> I love everybody in this uh, thing here. We got a good bunch uh, here, Doug. Yeah. We got a real good bunch. <laughs> well, it's inspiring. Time, Doug. It, Make it, it quick. It, <laughs> it's strengthening, okay, to my spirit. Um, Brent, the, the things you've been speaking about, I go to uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, this is a confirmation of what you've been saying. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, which is instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, Truly furnished unto all good works. And uh, all these topics today that we've, uh, that you've been addressing and, and all the contributions of the uh, people that have come in, in and spoken about these things, they inspire me because they're truth-based. 
Okay. Samuel brought up a subject earlier and Don was on the call and about standing for what you believe in. And uh, this is very important. You have to have conviction. And there is no other uh, <laughs> instruction booklet than the scriptures that one can reliably stand upon. And if you do that with conviction, then guess what? He's going to be on board with you because you're on board with him, the the author of this. It's it's by inspiration. It's the the you've mentioned this this uh, sentence or description. You know, it's from the breath of Yahuwah. It's like it's like the ability to be a belligerent claimant, Doug. You got to have that underneath you before you can be belligerent i don't mean you know beating somebody with a baseball bat i just mean standing on your position and your convictions if you don't understand the basis of them you can't stand very firm on it well another thing what our heavenly father expects us to be is like him he sent his son for our um salvation in a sense okay for our forgiveness uh, there have been instances where I've, you know, being in a, kind of a street warrior, you know, I stood up for someone. Uh, he was being bullied in high school, and I came in and, and just stepped in front of him because he was going to get beat up. And I fought this guy and beat him up. And I didn't get any thanks from the guy I saved there from that situation it didn't matter to me there are, there are just elements of uh, bullies and, and evil and, and this it's kind like, of thing it's all these guys are is a bunch of bullies yeah I mean really that's all they are and it's kind of um, I'll just finish with this there's uh Brent you'll you'll probably uh, be able to relate this specific scripture but it's it's a a prophet prophetical statement that when the judgment comes and the devil himself is pulled in by the father's angels and people are looking at him and they go this is what ruled the world this is what we were afraid of it's correct Okay, so I'm done. Thanks. That's exactly what you hey, do Brent. is you step through that wall yeah. of fear. Hey, is that, hey, Bob, welcome back, Hello. bud. Yes. Hey, Brent, uh, a lot of new listeners I know beyond who's on the board. And we throw the words religion around, the word religion around. And quite frankly, I doubt most people have any idea what it means because we have this modern concept of going to worship by singing songs and raising our hands and we're, we're dedicated if we go every week and we try to be a good person and that's so much hogwash the whole idea of what the word religion actually means when you put it in the context of the founding fathers and where you're at in terms of um, their intent with freedom of religion it wasn't freedom to worship it was freedom of association that's why it's in the first amendment 
No, that's right. And, I agree. And that's right. It's good. You know, the yeah. idea that religion is more than just uh, a Sunday thing, and it's it's a structuring of society and how you want to, what society you want to be in, what private yeah. associations you want. Your whole life. And the is, other thing is the idea a couple of days ago, uh, Cody, Cody was on, and something came up about the Amish, and he was talking about them, and and he brought up, you know, Romans 13, the whole thing with being submissive to government. Uh-huh. And I have one word, exosia. It has nothing to do with being submissive to government. It has everything to do with your, your freedom under God's uh, jurisdiction and how you how you choose to be free under God. Mm-hmm. And, man, that has been perverted so badly and so well at the same time mm-hmm. to our detriment. And the other thing I'll bring up very quickly is the analogy of, and almost any time you bring up an analogy, it falls short in some manner. But still, they're illustrative because it gets it gets the concept across. Mm-hmm. And the idea of men and women being equal, I'm fine with that. But let's let's define our terms of equal and equality and equity are not all the same thing. You may have equal value, but it doesn't mean you're playing the same position. The football team quarterback and the football team right tackle are not interchangeable. Not they never have been. They never will be. True. You can spread that analogy through so many other structures. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean one's more or less valuable. Because mm-hmm. if you take him out of there, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you only, take the you take you know, the tackle the out. Is there for a reason? You take the and tackle course, out. As the father of three daughters. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of chances to uh, <laughs> illumine on that, or you know, bring that forward because uh, there's just so much of modern society that's based on well, you can be equal, and that's really misunderstood. I yield. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, no, I agree, Roger. I don't want to. I was going to say, I could say, but is it time to wrap up? Well, it's pretty Bob, close. I was just going to say they may be equal, but you take that tackle out of there, your quarterback ain't going to be in there very long, probably. <laughs> hey, Brent, did Anna buy all the common lawyers' translations of the Bible too that day? Well, I didn't have those out on the table back then. I had it, but we were printing them just one at a time, and it was more in the incipient state of it wasn't being put out there to the public and people weren't asking for it. So the answer is no, no, she didn't. But that translation of the Bible, the winterized version, as some people call it, you can go to commonlayer.com and read about it and why I did it and all those kind of things. But, and how I, what my understanding of translation is to be, you know, there are two fundamental ways to translate ancient texts. And one of them, and this has uh, come from, uh, some Bible translators, one of them, a fellow named Nada, he and he um, popularized, which is popular now, like the New International Version, the dynamic equivalent, the dynamic equivalent approach where you read a phrase in the original tongues, the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, and then you just think about, well, how would that phrase be put in English? And then you write that. That's that's not translation. That's just mush. That's all that is. It's not, it's not pay, paying attention to what Jesus Christ said, uh, "Jot every jot and every <coughs> every tittle uh, shall come to pass." So you want to be as accurate as possible, word for word, as much as possible, and grammar for grammar, as much as possible. 
And then with your words, and this is why I did it and I did it this way, not only word for word as much as possible, but the same Hebrew word, root, I want to translate with the same English word root every time that word root appears, whether it's as a participle or as a present active indicative, whatever it is, third person, second person, plural, always try to make it the same English root. And I have found that in almost all cases you can do that. If I can line up 100 occurrences of a Greek word, I'm doing it this morning, 100, about 109 occurrences of this one otherwise insignificant word, I can translate it every way at the same time, but there's always an exception, I found. But still, I want to make it look like, I want to make it look like, and to get across the stressing of those words to the reader that the original writers had. And that means if, here's a good test to back translate. If you back translated my translation into English, how close would you get to the original text? That's a good test for a good translation. Well, if you translate and do away with the dynamic equivalence approach, then uh, you can uh, translate that way. It takes a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of tracing of words. And I, I think that's all I've ever done for the last 10 years is trace Greek and Aramaic and uh, Hebrew words through the Bible. And then you notice other things around them. You try to match the grammar with the grammar. But no, she didn't. She didn't buy that thing. Are we off yet, Roger? Well, we're just off. about to. CommonLawyer.com so you can get more Brent. Go to the events button. You can see how to get him on church Saturday and Sunday and ch- Sunday in church. And then Thumper, uh, his cohort Thumper, and I follow him for two hours. For those of you that will like to uh, g- get involved in that, that's where we are on Sundays. Glad to be over there with you, Mr. Brent. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we'll see you. Sunday, and then I'll be on tomorrow, Patriot Soapbox. Thank you all for your comments. This is profitable. John, uh, who has uh, stepped in a couple of times here from Wisconsin, is one of our newer listeners, and he's taking Uh your course on Saturday. Aren't you, John? Yes, I am. I'm I'm just getting through, Brent, the the foreword to your your translation of the Bible. And, man, it is, you know, and I speak Greek and write it, and, uh, yeah, it's wonderful, and... uh, I'm a little bit tardy in getting my assignments in. I think I'm the second place. <laughs> Shame well, on you. I yeah. pleaded my case to Francine, and she said it's all good. But oh, she did, didn't she? Oh, okay. I, I, we'll got about locked, that. I got locked up. I went on a little holiday, so I kind of stopped my studies for a bit. But uh, that's, uh, that's okay. no excuse. But, yeah, I, thank you very much. Oh, um, I appreciate your kind words. Also, uh, on Fridays here, Jim Ram plays a replay, so we don't have to turn the board over to him. Uh, so if you guys, any of you guys that are on the board uh, want to stick around and have your own meeting, you're you're welcome to exchange ideas, get to know each other, all that stuff. I know some folks really enjoy that. So that is uh, at your fingertips today if you'd like to take advantage of them. It's kind of a different show here lately, Brent, from what we've done. Usually we, you know, you pontificate and do the, the spiritual and the biblical connections and stuff. And today we got off on a little bit different uh, path. And it was uh, an, uh, it was interesting and kind of uh, nice. It's a nice show today. Well, I felt that way, too. And I appreciate the, uh, well, the participation. So, you know, we haven't had, what's that, Roger? I was just going to say, you know, it's amazing because I, 
I sense us really starting to get traction, and we're right on the cusp of, I think, hitting some bigger platforms, and a lot of people are looking for the information we've got, and it's just really, after all these years of beating my head against a wall, it seemed like, uh, it's it's a great satisfaction and feedback to me to see us at this point, and, you know, year, a number of years ago, I just turned this over to him. Uh, because it was driving me crazy that I couldn't get it advanced very much. And I just said, okay, it's on your timetable now, and you open the door when you're ready, and I'll continue to try and do my best to get ready for that time. And I think we're just about there. Well, hey, Roger. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, uh, Brent. You know, uh, prophecy, one of the prophecies says that in the last days, uh, when, you know, if he doesn't come back, at a specific time, no flesh will be alive. And so this prophecy says that in the last days, knowledge will be increased. In other words, it's going to be given. And I, I mentioned yesterday, I think it was on Jim's show, knowledge, it, it, you know, I'm a lover. My first love is scripture. But I have other loves. Uh, uh, that all, and I seek truth on them. And Brent, you know, when I, when I was doing my, um, had the time, I had a couple of months to just study all day. I didn't have to work. And so whenever I had, as I was reading through scripture, mainly the New Testament, uh, I would, but it, it of course, everything relates back to the Old Testament because that's the foundation. Um, when I wanted to understand a, a verse, I would I'd pull out all my research books and I would have to start with the first word in the verse this, and then go to the second word in the verse, etc. And, and then study the first word from Revelation I mean, excuse me from Genesis to Revelation to get every single usage of that word to, to get a context and that's the way I did my research and I'm sure you I mean that's the only way to really research it is uh, to get it study one word then you, it, once you've gone through, sometimes there might be hundreds of this word used, and then the next word there might be five. But you have to be thorough in your research if you're really serious about doing research. What do you think about that? Um, I say with trench. Uh, Bar Bernard de Clairvaux Trench. He's an Englishman with a French name. I suppose he, I suppose he was. That came from the. <clears throat> he was probably from the, the Normans or something. But this has been a couple of hundred years ago. He said, uh, "I'm a word man. I yeah. attach the highest importance to words." And then you can add to that: when men lose the meanings of words, they lose their lives, their liberties, and their properties. Listen, everything in the Bible. Everything in law, everything in the Constitution, everything is governed by words. Yep. God governs by words. Is it any wonder that the creatures that he crowned his creation with, 
he made them, he says, out of his imagination, his image. He imagined us, and then he made us. Is it any wonder that we, he has delegated to us, the authority to govern with words? Words are not some things. Words are all things. And when it comes down to understanding law, don't kid yourself. There's no mystery as far as this goes. It's just a matter of looking at every word and parsing every word and saying to yourself, as we said yesterday in our, our grand jury class, when it comes to writings of legal significance, the hermeneutic, the rule of interpretation that has never wavered is that every word must tell. That means there are no superficial words. That's the way the courts, our courts sometimes put it. There are no superficial words in our writing, in any writing of legal significance, whether it be a contract, a trust indenture, the Bible, a statute, a regulation. There are no super words and it's the job of the interpreter and you take the bible you've got you've got a book that god has breathed out you said a while ago it's it's inspired uh, you quoted the bible that word yeah. inspired is theonumatos theo or theo as they would say numatos what does that mean by the letters that means lawgiver theos numatos pneumatic it means air in greek air breathed it is breathed out inspired means breathed in <laughs> in latin so it's backwards but it gets the sense in our english tongue but it's it's really the expiration of god and he expires his breath and the analogy that's created is this is god's a record of what god said as air came over his vocal cords that's what this is and it will always come to pass without oh, fail yeah and every, every word every one of his declarations yeah, every word and yep. so we call that the doctrine of inerrancy. It's an ancient doctrine. It's the only writing of, of legal significance that can rightly claim inerrancy. In other words, there, it communicates no error of fact. And when we say it communicates no error of fact, what we're saying is this. We are saying that everything the Bible says was said and done, was indeed said and done, just like the Bible says it was said and done. But that does not mean that everything the Bible says and done, said, uh, everything the Bible says was said and done, ought to have been said and done. A lot of the things the Bible records were said and done were unlawful things said and done. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter remains that as an affidavit, as a testimony, and that's what the Bible calls itself, it calls itself testimony, that these things were said and done, and this is the affidavit, these are the affidavits saying so. John the Apostle even says in, in the book of First John, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have wit 